Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hello, podcast listeners. You're probably confused right now that like I'm a, like I'm a singer. No, I'm not a singer. I am your podcast host, Al Martin here. Thank you for joining us. Hope everyone is extremely well in podcast land, and thank you for listening. The topic we have today for you is AI. We always have data, right? And the foundation or entrepreneurship in tech companies. It's going to be a good discussion. Today, I have Dr. Eric Daimler with me. Eric is an authority in artificial intelligence. He's got over 20 years experience in the field. He leads MIT's first ever spin out from its math department, and he has co-founded six technology companies that have pioneered work in fields ranging from software systems to statistical arbitrage. As a presidential innovation fellow during the Obama administration, Eric helped drive the agenda for U.S. leadership and research, commercialization, and public adoption of AI. He's everything. I think you're everything, right? Entrepreneur, executive, investor, technologist, policy advisor, author of a new book. I think it's The Coming Composability, The Roadmap for Using Technology to Solve Society's Biggest Problems. And then on his copious spare time, copious spare time, he serves as assistant dean and associate professor of software engineering in Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science. There he focuses on the intersection of machine learning, computational linguistics, and network science. Eric, how did I do? Well, that is a very kind uh, introduction. I'll be <laughs> sure to tell my wife all these things. Yeah. Well, that's quite a resume. I have to say <laughs> that's you. quite a resume. Thank you. Nicely yes. done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. We'll, we'll see. We'll see uh, uh, what your listeners will say then uh, after we speak. But thank you. <laughs> well, we'll put you to the test. You know, yeah. that's funny. No, great resume. But why don't you introduce yourself? Forget the resume. Put it aside. Talk to your experience. What brings you here ultimately? All right. What's the yeah. path that, that yeah. brought you here? Yeah. Well, it's it good to be good to be here, Al. Thank you for for having me. I am often known for the time that I spent with the Obama administration uh, acting in the capacity of an AI uh, authority during, during the last year uh, of that administration. That was a good time, fantastic people. We did some really good work laying out an agenda for uh, research and coordinating the efforts across the executive branch. It's, it's really a, a bipartisan uh, uh, concern for uh, to make sure that uh, American technical leadership and really Western technical leadership uh, continues uh, in the in the coming decades. That perspective w was a, uh, a fantastic culmination of uh, years spent as an AI researcher at, at Carnegie Mellon, at Stanford, and at University of Washington, Seattle. Uh, along with some terrific entrepreneurial journeys with great business partners and uh, time as a venture capital investor uh, on Sand Hill Road. What I came to find out through that, that very large uh, privileged perspective in the U.S. federal government was that uh, investors, entrepreneurs, and, and consumers, users were going to be disappointed with some of the expressions of AI with which they were experimenting, with which they are experimenting. 
we've been fascinated with AI in with with many of these uh, very sexy breakthroughs, such as the uh, the the challenge for autonomous cars in the early two thousands to some algorithmic breakthroughs in the late 2000s where deep learning uh, uh, came into its own and, and, and deep mind was able to beat some champions in, in Go. Those have, are fantastic and they cop- capture the popular imagination, but expressing those into uh, commercially appropriate uh, applications has proven to be more of a challenge than we might otherwise have thought. Early on in my investing career, I was told to uh, be sure, be careful about confusing a clear vision with a short-term time horizon. I think many of us have confused that with regard to uh, AI and, and robotics. We, we thought autonomous cars were going to be here, uh, and to, to hear Elon Musk tell it, they'll, they'll be here next year. And next year, they'll be here next year. Yeah, that, that's the thing, right? It's always next year. It's like, I'm waiting for a while there. It was like, it was right there. We're, we're having it. It's over. You might as well get out of the way. It's autonomous cars. Don't even buy a regular car anymore. And now we're yeah. still waiting for next year, right? We really are. Yeah. You know, it's a funny anecdote that uh, you know a lot of people uh, haven't appreciated how long it's taken us to get where we are today with autonomous technology. You know, I have some good friends still in that business in various capacities. And uh, I won't put you on the spot, but or, or and, and, but your listeners and you can imagine in your heads when, when the, what the first year was. So your, your listeners can imagine what the first year was where autonomous vehicle went down a public road. So just have that year in your mind. When was the first vehicle on a US public road? Going down by itself, no driver. So you think, well, was that 2005? Was that 2000? I would have probably been crazy and even went earlier than that. 1983. 1983. I was going to go with 1970 or something, but uh, that makes sense. So who did that, by the way? Uh, Carnegie Mellon's Field Robotics Center with the fantastic professor, uh, Red Whitaker, who later went on to... Uh, teach some terrifically talented students. Uh, uh, one of those then went on to lead the Stanford team that ultimately beat the Carnegie Mellon team in a in a grand challenge for off-road autonomous driving. Uh, this has been uh, going on for decades. And so, so what? Why is it taking so long? Is it a, is it a technical issue or is it a human expectation perception acceptance issue? It's a technical issue, to be sure. Uh, you yep. know, there are definitely uh, regulatory issues to overcome. Uh, and the, the initial in- instantiation of autonomous driving was modest. It was a very big van with some massive computing power in the back with 1983 <laughs> technology, you know, driving right. down a public road in Pittsburgh at five miles per hour in good weather. So the, that was modest. You know, Mercedes at the time had something that could drive on a freeway uh, a little more, uh, a little faster, but it had to follow a very clear uh, white line. That's an easier problem. Uh, these difficulties around vision and around computation have improved uh, over the, the decades, not just because of Moore's law or understanding about how these uh, different uh, sensors need to be integrated 
better have improved over the years. Uh, we've you've used lidar, we've used uh, uh, radar. You know, Tesla famously thinks that they don't need lidar in the atom- uh, in their autonomous vehicles. So anyway, the point is these have all improved, and these these are really hard problems. They're just really hard, and so they'll just continue to take a long time. On the last point we can say on this is that the level of autonomy uh, it matters. So when people talk about full autonomy, we should be careful because full autonomy means the literal definition, level five, means that something can operate, a machine can operate in all circumstances. And that's almost a religious statement because, you know, there's going to be some circumstances. Snow would be a good, easy one yeah, yeah. where, where we, we, we may need human intervention for quite some time. The good news is 1983, you could play Pac-Man in your autonomous bus if you were out there. Anyway. <laughs> all right. So, look, I got a couple questions. Before I forget, I'm going to come back. I'll probably go a little bit all over the place. You said it was bipartisan. Was it really bar- bipartisan? Is anything bipartisan? So the group with whom I worked in uh, in the Obama White House was colloquially known as the Science Advisory Group. Yeah, uh, I can say that from uh, firsthand experience, that group uh, was uh, uh, apolitical. Uh, the the people with whom I worked, you know, some of those people continued into the next administration. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of those people continued into the next administration and are again in this administration. So oh, I think in that way. Uh, you know, many of those people were trying to represent uh, American interests or what, even more broadly, perhaps the interests of America and its allies. Uh, I, I think that uh, everybody can get behind the idea of, uh, that the government, in whatever form it takes, should be doing its best work together, that uh, we will all benefit by having the different branches of the executive uh, the State Department, the Defense Department, the Department of Health and Human Services, coordinating their their research activity and any other uh, efforts around technology and science as much as possible. In that way, I think it's a bipartisan effort. We didn't talk politics in this in this group. You know, that's the West Wing, right? So the West Wing, they're the political people. Uh, you know, but you know, we didn't. Uh, we didn't do that. That's that. Well, why, why'd you leave? Did you get bored? Did you get kicked out for your radical ideas? What? Right, right. You know, I, I intended to be there only for a period of time. Uh, I stuck around only for a few weeks into the next administration, uh, right. and that was uh, that was that was a little awkward. Uh, uh, the the, the uh, you know science wasn't given the same uh, level of priority uh, in the next administration uh, as it was uh, during the Obama administration. Hey, and one last question. I want to come back to this, but did you ever fly on Air Force One, man? Uh, Air Force One is as cool as you think it is. So is, is that a yes? Yeah, I've been in Air Force One, and, and uh, I will tell you the one, the funny anecdote I remember about that is um, it's it has very tight security. It's just a weirdly, it's an unusual experience. It is unlike any other sort of private airplane. Uh, of course, it, it is a it is a lovely place to be. Uh, many presidents have said that uh, uh, that is one thing they miss. And, and I, I will yeah. tell you, as a as an infrequent passenger, I can understand. Good for you, man. I have not had that opportunity. So, hey, look, I want to I want to 
Well, I want to go through a lot of different questions that I have, but you said something that caught my attention. You said around AI, I, I won't get this right, but you said you can come to be disappointed. There's some sexy breakthroughs. So last week, just as soon as last week, I went visited a customer. I visit customers all the time. I'm responsible for, for tech sales here at, at IBM. And you know, I went to go talk to clients about their future. And when I go in there, I talk about data fabric. We talk about security, all the topics of the day. And at one point in time, I said, hey, what's your AI strategy? And they kind of laughed and they looked at me and they said, we don't talk about AI around here. And I said, and I get where they were going. I said, all right, uh, well, let's talk about machine learning then or whatever. The point was, hey, it's sexy. And they even went on to talk about it a little bit. We get sold a lot of sexy breakthroughs. And, you know, we're, we're going to wait out until we think there's something tangible. It's explainable. We know what we're getting. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a magic show. And I presume in the academic world, you don't get that sentiment. It's not quite the same. People get it and they know it's computer science. But I don't know. You also said, hey, sometimes people come to be disappointed. I usually am not uh, terribly fond of people being technology laggards. <laughs> I usually Me neither. I usually want people to be experimenting with technology uh, for reasons we can get into besides just the fascination with it, right? I, I want to actually be commercially responsible. Uh, often you know, boards of directors are there not to uh, just be nerdy, right? They're there to provide real uh, commercial value. Where I claim that companies are often misled in their AI initiatives is they're looking in the wrong place. Algorithms are not the constraint on a company's satisfaction with AI. And it's often even not data collection at this point that is the constraint on companies' success with AI. You know, I think many people have gotten the memo that data is the new oil or whatever the, uh, the, the little cliche is around yeah. that. There's a lot of data being collected. I think what people are not appreciating is the infrastructure to support that data collection and that integration of data. That's really been the surprise for me. That that's what I saw at the very highest levels, which is that we are increasing data year over year in a way that is really difficult to comprehend by itself. You know, quadratic explosions are tough to get our head around. We can just think about the explosion in COVID cases, and that is what quadratic explosions, or often people call them exponential explosions, a little different, uh, look like. They're, they're difficult for us to, to get our head around. What that is compounded by is the equally large increase in data sources. So you have a quadratic explosion in data sources. Think all the sensors from Internet of Things or, or any number of other ways we collect data around the world. Quadratic explosion in data sources, quadratic explosion in the data generated itself from any one of those sources, and you have an incomprehensibly large increase in data relationships. And data relationships are the instantiation of knowledge, of wisdom. They're the foundation upon which any large organization builds value. Capturing that data relationship between the data generated from all these data sources into some reliable way that can then be operationalized to gain advantage over competitors relative to market dynamics and customer behavior 
That is completely misunderstood from the deepest levels all the way up to the board. That is the foundation for disappointment from executives in technology, executives in the business lines, and uh, investors at the board level. The only the only thing I would uh, I don't know if it's a counter. Uh, I get everything you're saying, and to me, you know, it's around the infrastructure, the governance, uh, the cleanliness. You know, we got data. What I in my terms, there's a lot of data swamps out there. I mean, a ton. Most of the people I talk to do understand that, and they're trying to correct it. The question is, is how and how do they work up that ladder to AI as quickly as possible? It's almost a monumentous task from their perspective. I'm talking a lot of the CTOs, et cetera, but they're having a hard time getting from point A to point B such that they could proceed to AI. When you're talking with a lot of these business owners, you're saying that they don't appreciate some of the data issues they do have today and their inability to work up that ladder? Not that people don't understand this is, a, this is hard, but I think they, that the, there's, there's a lack of appreciation of how hard and how to solve that problem. Because AI algorithms are sexy, they're fun, they're interesting to talk about. Uh, and but but data engineering, kind of the precursor to doing the sexy algorithm work, that's mm-hmm. much less interesting. You know, often it involves, in many cases, vocational level IT. You know, the the billions and billions of dollars that are consumed every year through the likes of Tata and Wipro and Tibco, and to say nothing of Accenture or Deloitte. It does this manual preparation in uh, data engineering before you even can get to the the sexy, interesting work uh, around AI. That's really the problem. There's very, very few companies that have, 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 have matured enough in their own infrastructure to then realize that the problem is deeper than the machine learning algorithms or the subset of that, the deep learning algorithms that the problem is actually more foundational than computer science, where my PhD is in. It's actually at the level of math. We are entering a new epoch where we are going to shift from this framework of logic to this framework of composability. And that, that is registered at this, in this mathematical domain called categorical algebra or category theory. For for people that aren't familiar, they may be more familiar with type theory. It's kind of related to type theory, but it's in the semantics, not the syntax. It's also uh, it can be thought of as uh, where my research was in graph theory, but it's like graph theory with a little more structure. It's at that level of of math that we change the frame to how to solve these problems around data relationships. There are other expressions of that today, but often people just look at the expressions. One expression is in a blockchain and smart contracts. That's not composability in itself. That is an expression of composability. Also in quantum computing, that's not composability itself. That's an expression of composability. We as humans wouldn't be able to understand uh, what a quantum compiler even does or whether or not to validate a quantum compiler's accuracy without composable systems through type theory or category theory. Those are different expressions of composability. That's the new framework. That's where this math is showing up in other domains. What I'm claiming is that this is the bottleneck behind companies in using databases. That's the, that's the, that is the biggest issue behind fulfilling on the promise 
uh, for AI. Regardless of whether it's a data fabric or a data mesh, or uh, you're using data lakes or, or, or data bricks as uh, marketing speak of lake houses, those are all uh, beside the point. We, any one of those is going to fail uh, with their ability to scale uh, through their data relationships without a more foundational look uh, at the math. So, so putting that all together, though, summarizing, where are we with AI? I mean, if you, Mr. President, here's the situation. We are at the place where we uh, are building a, a sort of data tower of Babel uh, or Babel. <laughs> how, would, how do we pronounce that? I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is what we're building, uh, uh, a data tower of Babel, that the, the amount of data we have is in order to be properly linked in a provable way is uh, really beyond current processes. So a lot of people will use RDF. A lot of web pages are built on RDF or it's, it's the subsequent uh, technology OWL. Those don't, can't, can't scale. They will not scale. They're, really, they're based on, on linear algebra, kind of math that, that, that saw its commercial application explode in 1972 and then uh, in 1975, you had relational databases uh, get founded. Uh, that epic is uh, is now over. You know, the, the math of the 21st century, the math that's more appropriate is uh, for a digital age is uh, type algebra, categorical algebra, type theory, category theory. Those are, and, and probability and statistics. That's the math of the 21st century. Uh, and that's where we are, uh, Mr. President. You know, I can give you a story about this where as companies scale and they begin to realize their difficulty with scaling, uh, we worked with one company, a famous uh, ride sharing company that, like every other company, grew up concentrating on their business, not concentrating on their ideal IT infrastructure. So in this particular case, developed 800, uh, 800 and then pretty soon 8,000 8, uh, uh, different databases, different jurisdictions. <laughs> that, so they ha- couldn't do analysis for, uh, to look at what, would, what the, would the driver supply be over Super Bowl weekend in Dallas, it, we, along with the whole state of Texas. They had to do Dallas and then do a statistical comparison with Houston and then do another one for Austin let alone the whole state of Texas or the whole United States or, the, uh, or, or a broader, a different region. They had to do statistical comparisons. They tried solving that problem for what then became 300,000 databases. That wasn't solvable with RDF or with OWL or with throwing $100 million even at Accenture or Tata or Wipro or Tibco. That was solvable really at a deeper level. Even with these very, very smart people and an effectively infinite balance sheet to fund an optimal IT infrastructure, they realized they couldn't uh, do it on their own. So we went in uh, and and helped them solve that problem where to have them tell it, they they saved somewhere in the order of, of high seven figures, low eight figures a year, making their uh, business decisions more quickly uh, and with more uh, more confidence because they're solving solving it at the level of categorical algebra. They're integrating three hundred thousand databases uh, at the level of categorical algebra. Did they have to? I'm just curious. I mean, did they have to start all over, redo it? I mean, when you have that many databases, they clean it up and do a do over, or what? what you know, how do you correct that problem? 
Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Yeah, doing doing it over is not feasible. That's the old way of doing it. You know, the 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 the, the story there is uh, explaining explains the genesis of this technology. You know, you and I as U.S. taxpayers paid far far more than we would have had to in developing the the new the Defense Department's Joint Strike Fighter when it got developed because we had to start all over. We had to start from scratch. All of the learnings that- That's uh, where it's going. Yeah, well, that's that's why it was, that's one of the reasons it had such cost overruns because we were flying F-16s for many decades, learning uh, all the ways in which air and, uh, avionics would be expressed on that particular platform. And we couldn't migrate these, uh, these learnings on, these, these ancient technologies into a modern system in the context where uh, lives were at stake. The, the, it, it couldn't be depended on. You can't use these probabilistic models from machine learning or deep learning, right? it's a subset and they're all probabilistic. You can't use those models to, in a life and death context uh, of, of avionics. So you can't just start all over. No, fundamentally, to categorical algebra is using the existing systems and creating a provable mapping between these two systems. That's how these uh, these get expressed. I can use a, a story actually about that, where we've worked with a uh, hospital group in New York City. I didn't know this would happen in the it's hospital group that they have different definitions for diabetes. Uh, you know, if you and I go look in the Oxford English Dictionary, we we can find a, de a definition of diabetes, and it's it's just really there, the definition of diabetes. But across one hospital group, for whatever reason, uh, call it oh, because of timing, but more often because of the use case, the definition for diabetes in one group might be yes, no, the patient has diabetes, yes, no, that's a column on the table, column in the database, does the patient have diabetes, yes, no. At another department, might have the same patient, but the the definition of diabetes in that use case might be drug research, might be a different clinical purpose, might have a definition of diabetes saying something to the effect of, well, diabetes, how are we treating it? And then a third one might say diabetes, you know, how long ago? A fourth one, they might be well-meaning and they might put a whole bunch of unstructured data in that in that cell, in that column, in that table, which is, well, Eric had diabetes and they didn't have it, and we've been treating it this way, you know, a whole bunch of uh, other sort of unstructured data in there. That, that is one hospital group relating that having different semantics for the same underlying uh, issue called diabetes. That is a that's an example of the complications of of expressiveness inside of a large uh, database inside of one company. The integration of which is very, very difficult and often just gets ignored because of its difficulty uh, and expense. And that's what we mean when we're talking about the, uh, the, the, the difficulty of bringing all these together. That can't be solved or just impractical, impractical to be solved uh, with any existing technology. It's not about data cleaning. It's not, and it's not about any of these other uh, marketing frameworks, uh, such as uh, data lakes or, or your proper uh, interpretation of that, that often we see with data swamps. <laughs> Since you brought up the Obama role first, I'll, I want to have a few more questions there, and then I want to get on to your, your current company. Um, on the, the uh, Obama assignment, as I'll call it, you said you were driving the agenda. 
where were you spending your time and how do you define success? And then the second part to that question is how do we compare against other countries? Yeah, it's a, these are good questions. I, I, I'll answer the last one first. Okay. Uh, I, I think in, in pure research, uh, uh, I'm, I'm quite comfortable in saying that American research in AI uh, remains the world leader. Uh, I think the only domain uh, of academic research where I'd say China has leadership uh, is in chemistry or chemical engineering, that, and, which can be important because that's uh, the domain out, out of which we can uh, uh, have tangents to material science. Uh, so that can be important. But inside AI, uh, despite the, the often quoted fear of them having uh, them, the, 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 uh, the autocratic regime in China, having uh, uh, fewer scruples about how, how, we, how they're collecting data or using the data, uh, I'd say the underlying research is still better uh, in the United States. There's very, very smart people there, uh, but the, the research is still better in the United States. Uh, I think that could change. Uh, and the, the biggest concern that I have that I'm really trying to address uh, in, in my former work in the U.S. government and my work in trying to uh, publish the book and, and even talking to you is in bringing more people into this conversation. Uh, you know, as, lo as lovely as it is to be talking with other technologists who understand these uh, uh, emerging tools, uh, what's really important is that we bring more people into the conversation so that they can explore with us how they want this technology to be deployed in society in many of the gray areas uh, that, that have emerged uh, and will emerge. We want this technology to be embraced by uh, the American and Western public and not resisted. That has a strong correlation, or it may be even deterministic, for how continued uh, Western leadership uh, in AI. Thank you for being here, Eric. This has been very informational. You lived up to the hype. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate it. <laughs> and all listeners out there, thank you to you as well. Please let us know how we're doing. Reach out to us at almartintalksdata at gmail.com. And we will see you on the podcast. See you all later. Thank you.